Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So today's episode is going to be a little different. Uh, there's no guest. I am going to answer a bunch of questions and talk a bit about the way I approach living a creative life, living a life um, where I do uh, this creative work, where I'm able to write and um, produce work and battle uh, fear. You know, the kind of fear that I hear about from many of you online. Uh, and when you write me, the fear that if I do this work, maybe it won't be good enough, or maybe I won't be able to do it. Uh, maybe I'll quit. Maybe the document won't get finished. Maybe the idea won't come to fruition. Maybe it's a bad idea. You know, we all have these thoughts that race through our minds. I've found ways to do the work despite the thoughts. It doesn't mean the thoughts go away. They don't, but I put a bunch of stuff in place so that I could do the work. And uh, through answering these questions, I hope that uh, I can communicate some of that to you. So let's start. And I put the call out on Instagram and on Twitter. On Twitter, we use the hashtag uh, AskBCop. And so if you dig this and you want to ask questions going forward, that's how we should do it. So I'm going to start with a question from Samantha. Her hashtag is love and donuts. And the question she asks is what techniques do you use to help safeguard your creativity from fear and stress? So in, in answering this, I want to go backwards. I want to go backwards to being 30 years old and feeling blocked and when I say blocked, you should, you should change that to in pain because that is what I felt. I was in extremis. Uh, I was, you know, I've mentioned this image before, but I want to take a little more time with it. You know, my whole life growing up, because my father was in the music business and I grew up in recording studios, I'd assumed that I would for a living, I would end up making records in some way, not as the artist, but as the person working with the artist. And I was able to do that. I, I had success at it as a young person. Uh, I was able to recognize talent, uh, or a better way to say it is the product of talent. I was able to recognize when someone wrote a song that revealed a gift. And so uh, I started working in that business, but what became clear to me first as a feeling, as an emotion, before I even had the words to, to tell it to myself directly, but the feeling that I was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. My allegiance was with these artists, but I was an executive. My job was to help facilitate their careers, to help them make their art. And Part of the problem would be my connection to them was so strong and to their work was so strong that it actually made me a poor advocate for them within the companies. I would be dealing with a promotion person or a marketing executive. And if that person didn't hear the record and immediately like jump out a window because they thought I never need to hear another piece of music, 
rather than being able to articulate rationally why the music was good or the way in which they might bring it to market, I would become angry. I would become frustrated that they didn't see what I saw. And I would already, in my mind, be thinking of how to express back to the artist the rough road it was going to be. And I found this sort of position between worlds to be untenable. And it made me miserable. Now, I made a good living. But what I'd started to realize was that if I wasn't finding something to do during the day that allowed me to access the best part of myself, I couldn't, the other stuff alone couldn't make me happy. So I was married to a woman I loved, you know, Amy, who's still my wife, who gives me purpose and reason every day. And um, we had just had our first child. And those things would buoy me, but they didn't replace this, this feeling that I was not serving the highest part of myself. And I started to think about why I wasn't writing, because the idea did start to form that what I wanted to do was express myself the way a, a writer does. I didn't know at the time if that meant doing comedy or writing movies or television, but I knew I had to start and I, I realized the problem was from when I was a child, I had a very hard time completing anything. I was a perfectionist of a certain type so that I could write a couple of paragraphs, but the moment that it got challenging, the moment that I couldn't continue in this flow on the same level right away, I would feel like a failure, get frustrated and stop. And I did realize that this kind of blockage would lead to something in me dying. And that like any other kind of death, toxicity would come with it. And that toxicity would spread to those that I loved, to Amy and our son, later our daughter. And so I became determined to find a way to do this work. And started, I read the book, The Artist's Way. I had read Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, and saw that I needed to put a practice in place to do exactly what Samantha's asking about, which is to safeguard the creativity from fear and stress. Because what came clear was if I could just do a couple hours a day of this work, I would, the feeling I would get would last until the next day when I could do this work again. That it didn't mean I had to quit my job. It didn't mean I had to totally turn my life upside down. All it meant was if I found a couple of hours to produce work, to tap into the best part of myself, to find my highest purpose, that would elevate me for the rest of the day and allow me to kind of float through the rest of my day. And so I was, you know, luck plays a part in all this. My best friend was willing to collaborate with me and together we were going to write something. And then I stumbled into a poker club. But what these, and that's when we decided to write rounders together. We met every morning for two hours at the beginning of the day and, and wrote. But what allowed me finally to get past the block really was Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, which I just mentioned. Uh, and then because in the book, there's this tool, the morning pages. And I want to talk a little bit about morning pages. I've mentioned them a lot. And the best thing you could do is buy the artist's way, read about it, and then do them the way that Julia describes. But what I would do 
is write three longhand pages at the beginning of each day. And these are really right at the beginning of the day. And it's really a brain dump. And you're really just putting this stuff uh, on paper. You're putting, you're dumping your subconscious down. You're not lifting your pen. You're handwriting three pages and you're just letting it go. And what ends up happening is through the process of doing these morning pages, you free yourself for a time from this perfectionism, from this stuff that stops you from writing. It's what led me to know, well, okay, I can write and then I can rewrite. And I still do morning pages uh, every day and they still have this magical uh, effect. I also meditate every day and I try to take a long walk every day. And in combination, those things lead me to be able to do some work. And what I found is that stacking is true, that, that if you do a little work each day, so I was able to do two hours because of the way that the business that I was in was set up, I could get started really early and then get to the office by 10 and that was fine. But if you have to get to your office at eight and it's hard for you to write from four to seven or four to six or five to seven, write for a half hour and that's amazing. A half hour a day, you could write one page a day, you could write 365 pages in a year. That's three or four screenplays. That's, um, I don't know, six pilots or seven pilots. That's a novel. So a little bit every day. But what happens is each day you do it. And as these days stack up and stack up and stack up and stack up, you have genuine momentum. You have genuine forward progress. And you no longer, you can't feel blocked because you're doing the work. So I don't stop. I don't take a day off from the morning pages. I mean, have I missed a few days over 20 years? I've missed a few days because I've been shooting really in the process of working. But when I do, I feel shitty about it and I have to do them the next day, but not because it's a superstition because no matter what happened, I've written three pages. So the next day I'll write three pages. So I, it, and it, and it then leads me into doing the creative work. I, I've gotten a bunch of questions on here about morning pages. Like, do I just use them as a brain dump? What if a good idea shows up often? A couple times a year, a real idea will show up either on the morning pages or when I'm meditating. And I will take that idea and transfer it to another piece of paper. I'll, then I'll take out, you know, an iPhone or my computer and I'll type it up for myself. And um, then I'll have that idea. But when I'm, I'm, I'm not journaling with that intention, I'm journaling with the intention of a brain dump. And again, I recommend you go get uh, Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way, and check it out. All right, now I'm going to find the next question. So, okay, a bunch of questions are about how to break into the business. I've written some thoughts about this on my blog at BrianCoppelman.com, but I don't have a great answer for you. You know, one thing I really don't like is when people hold themselves out as expert on something on which they're not an expert. I'm not an expert on breaking in anymore. I broke in 22 years ago. And I'm so far away from that moment that I can't, answer the question. My answers feel idealistic. They're just all about doing the work. They're all about producing the pages and making something so undeniable, a script or a short, that it gets people's attention. But the truth is there are people much closer to the ground who can answer that question uh, better than I can. Okay, Brian Gallagher asks, what's your process for what happens right after that shiny new idea pops into your head? Do you try to flesh it out right away or just get it down on something before you forget it? So yeah, if an idea shows up, I will right away send an email to myself with just whatever the few words are. 
Or, and then when that's happening, maybe I'll write as much of it as I can down. Any new ideas that show up. And then I'll just try to walk around thinking about it. And it, because I have a partner, David Levine, lifelong best friend and creative partner, when I feel like I have the feeling of it enough, the tone, like I will bring it up to David. I'll go, hey, let's sit down and talk. And he'll do the same with me. And then we just kick it back and forth. And then I'll also somehow in the next day when I'm journaling, like it'll come up. Um, or I'll be lying in bed about to go to sleep or I'll be exercising. Uh, that's another part of it. I try to exercise every day, but I certainly do cardio five days a week. And often when I'm doing cardio and I listen to music, not pods when I do cardio, um, so that I'm in this flow state. Uh, and sometimes then the ideas will, um, you know, sort of start firing and keep going. And from there, um, I can really start writing it down uh, in earnest. Okay, Don Finelli asks, there's a fine line between getting out of your comfort zone and feeling doing something inauthentic. How do you know the difference between trying to stretch yourself creatively? So Don, I don't, um, I don't think about that. Uh, here, here's my general approach to all this stuff. I follow my curiosity and my obsessions. And if I'm curious enough about something that it keeps me engaged and interested and focused and connected, then I'm not going to worry about it if it's out of my comfort zone. I'm going to keep chasing it down. I mean, the financial world was completely out of my comfort zone before we started Billions. But the people in that world were fascinating to me. And I was incredibly curious about the effect that that kind of money has on people and on what it would be like to live as a nation state a human who got to live as a nation state. And so those things added up and those things made Dave and me really interested in the world enough to become expert, enough to chase it down so that it didn't feel inauthentic, enough to chase it down so that we could um, have ownership over it. And so once you do that, then, I don't know, then you're in the pocket, then you're in the groove. And the other thing is I intentionally do stuff that I know I'm not comfortable doing. Like I write songs and then play them for people. And uh, I write songs because it, it forces me to remember what it's like to take a risk. So I'm not doing that professionally, right? I'm doing that because as an artist, if I have an idea, I don't ever wanna be scared to chase it. So I'll pick up a guitar and I'll write the song and I won't write a quarter of the song or half the song. Over the week, I'll finish the song and then when I finish it, I'll record it. So that, and I put some of them up on BrianKaufman.com, and I'll do that so that uh, so that I'm in the groove of knowing that if the spark comes, I'm gonna light the fire. And I think that that's really important enough to say it again. When you when the spark is lit, when the spark occurs, light the fire with it and see what's gonna burn down. It's really uh, it's worth it, and it keeps you flowing. And I've talked about the flowing a bunch of times, being in a flow state. I do think it's um, kind of the, the difference maker. All right, Debrickashaw Swain asked me a question on Twitter. And the question is, is dialogue the easy part of writing? I think that, that for some people it's story, for some people it's dialogue. Yes, for me, writing dialogue is the most fun part. Plotting the story, and I love research too, but plotting the story, actually thinking of the story turns, really being willing to work hard enough to find the bones of a story, that's super hard, very difficult. Here's a great thing about Harry's razors. Uh, when you use them, like if I wanna shave under my beard, 
Uh, man, it's a close and clean and comfortable shave. There's a special offer for my listeners. Join 10 million people who've tried Harry's. Claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash moment. Look, Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. They knew a great shave doesn't come from gimmicks like vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. These are tactics the leading brand has used to raise prices for decades. Harry's fixed that by combining a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades at a fair price. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany. has been making quality blades for like 95 years. And they've received 20,000 five-star reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Harry's replacement cartridge is just $2 each. That's half the price of a Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. All Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know they'll give you a full refund. Get a $13 value trial set that comes with everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover. Listeners, my show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com slash moment. Make sure you go to harrys.com slash moment to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. So I like this question from Mr. Chow, uh, some, a lot of numbers. After that on um, Twitter, the question is, do you ever get burnt out when riding? A lot of us use our hobby as an escape in life. We use it to fuel our passion and hope this passion will spread out to other parts of our life. But sometimes when doing so, you get too attached to it. How do you handle that? Well, no, I don't really get burnt out doing this creative work. I'd say I can get tired. You know, if I'm writing, I can probably write for four hours during a day, maybe a little more when I get toward the end of the thing. But but because this work, I find it nourishing somehow. I feel more alive when I do it. And I, I don't want to make it sound too romantic. Like, it's hard as fucking hell to write well and to produce work every day. And a lot of the time I feel like a failure and I feel like I can't do it well. But for all that, it still feels nourishing. It still feels useful. And it still feels like it's lighting me up. I mean, there's a, in, the, in the life I lived before doing this, I would get burnt out. And I, part of the way I knew I had to change the direction of my life was not just what I said earlier about that I was miserable, but that I felt myself changing. I told this story to Adam Duritz when he was on the podcast, the very beginning, maybe he was the 10th guest on the podcast or something like that six years ago, five years ago. So, um, but I'll, say, I'll tell it now. And, and because it illustrated to me right in the moment why I needed to make a shift, even though it took me a few years after this to make the shift, right? You start to have these realizations, these, 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 experiences will, will happen and then suddenly uh, a notion will come into your head and you can act on it or not, but you can't deny that you've heard this voice tell you something about yourself. So one of these times was um, my, my whole life, I'd been somebody who when I saw a great movie or read a book that killed me or heard a great record, I couldn't wait to share it with other people. I always loved artists and I always loved great work in a way that would make me want to know everything about the person creating it, would make me want to share it with everybody I knew. I was so passionate about, um, and particularly about music, which you know, was still an enormous part of my life. 
But I was working in the music business and a guy I was working with called me into his office and said, I want to play with demo tape I just heard. And he played me the song. Uh, well, the song starts and the first lines are step at the front door like a ghost into the fog, never noticing the contrast of white on white and between the moon and you, the angels have a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right. And of course, that's Round Here by Counting Crows, Adam Duritz's band and song. And I heard it. And, and this is what happened. I immediately recognized its intrinsic quality. I knew it was on the highest level of execution imaginable. I knew this was an artist who was gonna change the world. I knew it was an artist whose record was gonna become huge. And I knew it was exactly the kind of music that I loved. But I wasn't filled with joy, nor was I filled with the urge to share it. I was filled instead with rage that some other music business executive had found it before me. Instead of the music penetrating me and moving me, instead it fired up in me jealousy and envy. And I was, had never been a jealous or envious person. Uh, we all have different faults different faults and different weaknesses that those have never been mine. But in that moment, I was filled with those emotions. And I went home that night and I allowed myself to marinate in what I'd felt because I recognized that I was at some kind of a crossroads. I recognized that if I allowed myself to become the kind of person who would only look at art for its mercantile aspects, who would only look at art for how I could profit off of it, I would become unrecognizable to myself and I would become a person I didn't like. And so I began to change the way that I did business in music, but I still wasn't at the place where I could completely break through. A wonderful moment was about a year later, maybe shorter time than that, yeah, about a year later, I guess, because they had to go off and make the record. But they were on Saturday Night Live and they played around here. And I remember watching that episode. And by then, I had allowed the thing to land for me. And I remember basically getting into a fetal position, just being crushed in the best way by Adam on television, by that guy's vision just finally getting out into the world. And it was a kick in the ass to me that, uh, again, my affinity needed to be and was with the guy out there writing those words instead of the guys uh, trying to profit off of those words. Which is all a way to answer the question, uh, I don't get burnt out doing this work, but doing anything else kind of makes me feel uh, burnt out. So, okay, here's another question by Carlos Sandoval asks, uh, how do you keep nourishing yourself to keep the spark alive? So that's related and it does go back to those things I said earlier. Um, but the, 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 the meditation, morning pages, long walks, cardio, and then listening to music, reading, watching movies. I, I want to keep stoking the, the flame by taking in great work. And I, I want to engage with that great work and ask myself questions about it and let myself get stirred up. As you get older, it gets harder to allow yourself to get stirred up emotionally by art, but it remains really worth it.
Okay, I'm going to answer a billions uh, specific question here. Krista Ginger Snap on DL, who's a huge Billions fan and um, writes on the Fan Fund Damian Lewis uh, website from time to time about the show, uh, asks, each season acts wears a heavy metal band's concert t-shirt. Do you know which band he'll don before you even begin writing the season? Or does inspiration strike when listening to music during the writing process? Both things. I mean, this season, it's already been in the trailer. So this is a small billion spoiler if you haven't seen the trailer. In three, two, one. Axe wears um, a Motorhead t-shirt. And uh, yeah, we had that idea toward the end of last season and knew the way we were going to use it this season. And, um, you know, it started because we we had this idea of the kind of music Axe listened to when he was in high school and the way he's still connected with it and what that particular form of rebellion meant to him. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're always thinking about it and we'll have the costume people get us three or four different t-shirts for each of three or four different bands we're considering. And then we make, and then we make our decision. I think you'll like the way that it's used this season. Paul Buckley asks, beside the big three of Paul, Damon and Maggie, were any of the actors the ones you'd particularly envisioned for the roles they play? Uh, well, Paul, I know you went to high school with David Costable, who plays Wags, and I think you probably know that David and I had Costi in mind to play Wags from the beginning, and um, we're thrilled that he came along to do it. If you listen to the show, you know I'm a big reader, I love to read, but there's so much I wanna read that it's hard to get it all in, especially making the show Billions and making this show. But uh, if you don't quite have the time to read a book, you can still develop yourself and grow and learn. There's an app I highly recommend, it's called Blinkist. It's the only app that takes the best, the key takeaways, the need to know information for thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them. Blinkist is made of busy people like you who wanna get the main points of books quickly without reading the entire thing. With an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now and it is a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health to history books. Look, I like Blinkist because uh, I want this information and sometimes it may lead me to read the whole book, right? If I read the 15 minute key takeaway, I might get right into the book. So, you know, I definitely uh, use Blinkist and, and listen to it um, when I'm walking from my uh, apartment down to the set or from my um, office up at the top down to set and uh, in the car uh, on the way as well. So uh, I highly recommend it, get in there. And uh, right now for a limited time, Blinkist is a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash moment to start your free seven day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash moment to start your free seven day trial. Blinkist.com slash moment. So on Instagram, uh, Jessica Lake asked me about rules of writing. And, and her question is, uh, is the most important thing the creative process where you take the reader? How important are rules? She says, I really struggle when I'm writing because I don't want to be put down for not doing things the right way. Should I be worried about this? Well, I, there are supposed rules that I don't, think uh, you should even think about it all or worry about it all. So what you should think about 
is communicating the story in the way you want to tell it to the audience that you envision reading it and watching it. And so, um, not to get in the screenwriting weeds here for people who aren't screenwriters, but uh, if you can, like, the traditional standard thing is that when you write a screenplay, at the beginning of each slug line where you set each scene, you write interior or exterior, and it's written as INT period or EXT period, and then the slug line. So if something was gonna take place in Bobby Axelrod's office, on our show, it would say INT period, uh, Axe capital comma, Axe's office, dash, day. But, um, and so in production, that's what we do. But when David and I write spec scripts, we leave off that interior exterior shit all the time. We want the read to be smooth and fluid. And so our own personal rule is, let's do whatever we have to do to make that the case. And so if that means that um, someone reading the script is going to think, well, that's not very professional. If, if they're thinking about whether your script is professional or not, you haven't enlisted them in your story. You haven't written something that demands they pay attention and that drags them through. And, and that's the goal. That's really what you're trying to do is write something that is so compelling that the reader doesn't even notice that stuff. Um, that's what we're trying to do anyway. So no, I don't think these supposed rules matter. I think, um, you know, if you're writing something supposed to be an hour, don't write an 80 page script, write a script closer to 60 pages. Um, unless you know that the way you want the dialogue to go is paced incredibly fast. So, uh, and I talk about this stuff on Twitter all the time. You can find me there to talk about that. Okay. Tina Mander. That's her name. I think Tina Mander asked me any advice for rewriting and a few other people asked me. So yeah. One of the things about being a, a creative person is when you do this creative work, you become emotionally attached to it. And the, the act of rewriting has to start from the opposite place. It has to start from a place of dispassion. So when you're writing your first draft, I want you to blow through it, have your ideas, rock on, don't let the doubts come in, finish your first draft. But once you've written that, and now you're gonna try to make it better, you need to bring your coldest eye to it. So that might mean you can't look at it for a week because the first week after you write it, you're still so emotionally hot about it. You're still connected to it. You have to wait until it cools off in the same way you might let a steak rest before cutting into it so the juices don't run out. Let the piece of material rest uh, for a long enough time that you know it's to the right temperature for you to deal with it. And then get in there and um, do the work. And another person asked me about notes and how to, the note comes from somebody um, who says, how come when I revise by incorporating feedback from other people, it gets worse? Well, I would say, don't incorporate feedback from other people and consider to think of it as feedback from other people. You only can incorporate into your, and by the way, this is across all things. This does not only apply to screenwriters. Uh, in any endeavor, it, it, yes, if you show something to people who then you think these people are smart and that they'll have good feedback, you can still only execute the things in revision that you understand and that makes sense to you and that you feel like will make the thing intrinsically better. So by definition, Dave and I do not incorporate notes that we think will make the thing worse. We try to understand the root of the note. Hey, is this note because something doesn't work here or something didn't work earlier? 
And if you can figure out why the note shows up, you have a chance to figure out how to address it. But we never just take sort of a prescriptive note that we don't agree with and throw it in. And we didn't, and I'll say, we wouldn't do that even at the very beginning of our career. Because to us, uh, protecting the intrinsic value of the thing is better for the people even asking you to do it, right? What they really want is the thing to work better or work in a way they understand. But if they knew how to really tell you how to do it, they would do it. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have you do it. Uh, okay, let's do another question here. What is my favorite Murakami book? Well, this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. I, his nonfiction book, what I talk about when I talk about running is brilliant. And one of the best books about being an artist I've ever read in my life really gives you the, the, his mindset on what he had to cut out of his life in order to do the work he wanted to do. And the things that remained were these very simple breakfasts of fish and rice, running and writing. And that's basically it. And I wish I could live my life that way. But I like them pig's feet too much, as Spike Lee's character in Malcolm X says. Um, meaning, I am not as disciplined, and I am too much a prisoner of my appetites to really live up to Murakami's example. And then on the fiction side, look, I think he's the best fiction writer going, and uh, I love colorless Susuru Sasaki. Colorless, uh, I think, is just a brilliant late period uh, Murakami book. For an earlier one, you really can't go wrong with Wind Up Bird Chronicle. You really can't go wrong with Hard Boiled Wonderland. You can't go wrong with Norwegian Wood. These are all really fantastic books that I just fully, fully recommend. Couldn't recommend more strongly. Okay, this is good. A question from Carter Witte. What rules do you have for who to share your writing creative work with and at what point? Yeah. Deciding when to share something is similar to the rewriting question. First of all, you want to share your work when you can't figure out how to make it better anymore. So you're working on it, you're rewriting it, you're engaging with it. Now, at first, of course, as soon as you produce something, you're like, I want to show it. But it's better to wait and show the thing uh, when you're like, I think this is as good as I can make it right now. Wait a few more days. Uh, I know there are things about it that aren't perfect, but I don't know what to do. So, and then you have to show it to people you trust, people who you think can read for uh, your own intention. So when I was writing Solitary Man, I got about halfway through and I was really stuck. So this is a time where I didn't wait till I was done. I was really stuck and I really didn't have a path forward. And a really, a close friend of mine, one of my best friends, a guy named David Sigerson, he is a writer, a novelist, um, and a songwriter. But I knew he would understand what the movie was supposed to be. And I sent him the 60 pages so that he and I could talk. And he read them, and he, he got why it was a movie. And then he just said a sentence to me about where the thing could or could not go. And um, he said, I hope you're not gonna do X. And I said, well, X is exactly the thing I thought I had to do. And it's why I can't write, it's why I'm stuck. And he said, yeah, but here's why that can't be what you do. What else could you do? And then I went away, and three weeks later, I'd finished the script after being really stuck on it. And so I knew that he would read it from a place of compassion and with an intellect that was geared toward the thing I was trying to do. And so it's important to find those people uh, in your life. Do not share it though with the people to whom you're trying to prove something, which is a self-destructive instinct that artists have a lot of the time. I'm gonna show that. Now, if you know that one of your parents thinks you shouldn't do this, 
your brother, your sister, your old friend from high school, hold off. Don't do it yet. Don't show it yet. Wait. So, all right. Um, I'm interested to know if any of this was helpful to everybody. I'm going to stop here. And uh, if you have more questions or you want me to do this another time, throw it up there. Uh, I'm really happy to, to do this. And um, put the hashtag uh, AskBCop and ask me anything you want. Find me on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Email me at gmail.com, and I'll see you next time.